Welcome to People Data Insights. This is your host, Paul Ryman. Uh, greetings to everyone and comp season's greetings to all of my compensation friends out there in the middle, middle of or wrapping up an annual comp cycle. Uh, quick plug for those comp friends listening. Uh, be on the lookout for a white paper coming soon from Novo Insights about ways to measure the success of your annual cycle. I've been speaking with a lot of you about what you're doing and what you wish you could do. And we're trying to capture that in a nice paper to give you some ideas for the future. Uh, thanks for listening as always. Uh, a few months in, I'm really excited about the reach and engagement from the audience. Uh, I'm blown away by the global spread that we're seeing. But apologies to the audience in, uh, at last count, I think it's 17 countries, not the United States. Um, as the next three episodes in particular are a bit US-centric, uh, this is going to be the first of a three-part series on pay transparency. Obviously a very dynamic topic uh, with lots of change and lots of movement in the market here in the US. So we're going to spend three episodes talking about that, breaking it down three ways. Uh, the first, which is today, is well, what's changed? What's the law? Uh, and how do we think about complying with the law? So it's more compliance-focused, more practical, you know, what do we need to do? Then um, I'll be featuring my good friend and distinguished attorney, Chris Ward from Foley and Lardner. The, the next episode will be about, well, what are people actually doing? You know, th there's the law, and then there's the what, what we actually can implement. Um, so I don't <clears throat> know anyone who's looking at job postings and thinking about this more uh, than Compensation Tools' Justin Hampton. So he's going to join me, and we're going to talk about how organizations are complying and, and actually managing the new transparency issues. And then the third episode is going to be with, with Brian Briscoe, our frequent collaborator, to think about what are the medium and long-term effects that we expect to come from this transparency movement. You know, what, what is it trying to accomplish and what do we think it actually will accomplish based on research that has uh, occurred in other markets with similar movements or other economic models that might uh, suggest what the impact of added transparency might be. So three episodes to talk about pay transparency. Today we're focusing on the law, right? So what's changed and how we think about that. I'm being joined by Chris Ward, who's a partner with Foley and Lardner in their labor and employment practice. Uh, Chris practices in both California and Illinois, so has unique perspectives on how this is affecting employers today. He co-hosts an annual labor and employment law summit, which is unquestionably the most unique in the market, uh, featuring a cover band called the Salary History Band. Get it? Think about that. Um, and that band happens to not only feature Chris himself, but maybe someone else you might recognize if you're ever, ever able to attend. So let's jump into the conversation with Chris. Hey, Chris. Thanks for joining. Hey, my pleasure. Let's rock and roll, Paul. Absolutely. Well, why don't we start with uh, you telling everybody what you do? Uh, well, the, the, the formal bio is I am a, a labor and employment attorney and partner at Foley and Lardner. Um, and my practice is very nationwide focused on wage and hour, but I like to say that I try to solve people's problems and make their business better. If you're getting down to the sort of brass tacks. I like that description better because, um, the audience can't see it, but I also am currently wearing and frequently wear a shirt that says, at least I'm not a lawyer. Um, and that's because the brand image, let's say that HR people and lawyers can have and solving problems is definitely more, uh, positive way to talk about the uh, the impact we can make. So I always appreciate that description. Thank you. I wish I, I wish I could wear that kind of shirt too, but unfortunately I shot myself in the foot there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you are a lawyer. Uh, you'd have to you'd have to say at least I'm not an HR person. There we go. Um all right, so so uh, the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Um 
you know, we have a little game we play. I'm going to give you two choices. Sometimes it's three choices, and you have to pick one. Don't overthink it. Um, you know, just kind of come uh, come top of mind. What which would you pick? So the first one is what I ask almost everybody: Would you rather be funny or good looking? Funny. Yeah, that's a consistent answer, uh, especially again on an audio only podcast. <laughs> well, I already know that I'm not good looking and I'm doing okay, so maybe it's because yeah. I try to be funny. I don't know. Yeah, at least there's a chance there, right? <laughs> the devil you know is better than the one you don't. There you go. There you go. Uh, beach, golf, or ski? Ooh, probably golf at this point in my life. Yeah. Uh, visit Antarctica or visit space? Space. Yeah, that one's harder, though. You can actually get to Antarctica at a reasonable price. Uh, space is a little bit beyond most people's means at this point. <laughs> I was assuming somebody else was paying. So you know. There you go. So then it's just pure, uh, pure exploration, right? Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, see the future or change the past? See the future. It's a deep, it's a deep one, right? <laughs> see the future. Oh, say more. You have to explain that one a little bit. Well, You're so quick on it too. I was quick on it because you know, I, you and I are friends. We've known each other for a long time, and one of the things I've really tried to take a hold of for I don't know the last decade and a half of my life is you—you you only are who you are because of everywhere you've been. And you know, I have my flaws. I've got all kinds of issues, but generally speaking, I think I have a pretty good sense of myself and what I'm trying to do in life. And if you go back and unwrite history, you unwrite yourself. So it's sort of a, a failing proposition in my mind. Whereas if you know what's coming, you can write yourself and, and align your values based on what you know is coming down the pipeline. Wow. That was, you know, I have known you a long time, Chris, and that might be up there in terms of the most insightful 15 seconds uh, I've ever spent with you. Well, there's been a lot <laughs> of chaff and waste as part of that time too, you know, so. <laughs> Fair enough. No, that was great. Well, si since we, we've known each other for a while and uh, we share a, a love of music, uh, for the listening audience, we actually play in a band together uh, periodically. Um, the the last segment of this or that questions, I'm going to give you five sort of musical categories and then two choices. And the premise is you have to listen to just that band or that artist, okay. never the other one, right? Okay. So within that genre, that's the only artist that you get to listen to for the rest of your life. And you got to pick one of the two. Um, so the first category are uh, hair bands. So you get a choice between Guns N' Roses or Poison. Oh, Poison. Easy. Wow, didn't even think about that one, too. Uh, that was a hard one for me, just because there's so many good hits on both sides. Um, all right, boy bands, NSYNC or Backstreet Boys? Ooh, I think I'd have to go Backstreet there. Ah, disagree, disagree. I love me a little Justin Timberlake. <laughs> I, do, I do, too, but, you know... the. I always felt Backstreet was a little more fulsome in their talent as opposed to being a, a one-banner headline, you know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, 2000s or sort of turn-of-the-millennium hip-hop, Nelly or Ja Rule? I'm going to have to go with Nelly because I honestly couldn't name a Ja Rule song, so I don't know what I'm choosing there. Oh, uh, Ward, you got like Living It Up and uh, Mesmerized with Ashanti. You know, those are all Ja Rule jams. But yeah, I'm with you, Nelly... Uh, you can't beat Ride With Me and things like that. Yeah. Um, more in your genre, less in mine. Country, we're going to go with either Garth Brooks or Keith Urban. Keith Urban. Easy. Yeah, I thought you'd go there. I know you've got a, you got a soft spot for Keith. Well, he's just a virtuoso <laughs> on the guitar, plus he's got a smooth voice. He's, he's just an incredible musician. Also true, I agree. 
Uh, all right, and the last one's kind of a, it's a loaded with, with four choices. But in the category of bands that just don't go away, you've got the Rolling Stones, U2, Metallica, or the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Metallica. Just one. Metallica. Metallica. Ah, that hurts me a little bit as a big U2 guy. But uh, I could see it, though, because uh, there's a lot to rock out to there, for sure. Part of it's the energy, <laughs> right? If you only get one, you're getting a higher energy level, plus I'm either proud to admit or ashamed to admit. I'm not sure, but my 15 and 13-year-old daughters both love Metallica right now, so it creates some affinity. Oh, there you go. You're raising them right. <laughs> well, good. Well, that was just to, you know, humanize ourselves a little bit, but uh, talk a little bit about our shared love for music. You know, one thing where we're a little bit different is another question that I ask every uh, guest on this podcast, which is on a scale of one to 10, how much do you love data? So I'm going to give a professional answer to that, and I'd probably call it like a solid seven. And the, the reason for that is data are really important to sort of what we do in terms of the more you can reduce things to objective arguments, the better are you at winning. At the same time, so much of my job is dealing with people in conflict and in stressful situations. And when people are in those stages, they just, they don't really do rational things a lot of time and data get reduced to little value. You know, I've probably said to you, mm. or don't, don't expect rational things from irrational people. And that is the yeah. space I live in a lot is seemingly rational people doing irrational things and then other rational people trying to rationalize irrational behavior. And so data offers a lot less value than experience for me in that stage. Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, others that I speak to where we kind of argue, well, am I a nine, a 10? Like there's somebody that loves data more than me. So even as a seven, uh, you know, you, you're, you're on brand as an attorney to be a little bit less about the numbers, which is fine. Yeah, da <laughs> we'll da data are very useful to what I do. But at the end of the day, I live with people and people don't often defy data, you know? Totally. And, and some lawyers like to, you know, also point out that uh, the data can come against you just the same, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a weapon on both sides. Well, um, to jump in then, sort of the, the topic du jour is around pay transparency. There's a lot happening in this space, or has been really, over the past couple of years, but it's really coming to a head recently with some notable changes. Um, you know, so this being uh, soundly in your practice area, and one thing I know you know a lot about is California in particular, where there's been a lot of change. So I guess give us an, an opening statement, if you will, uh, and highlight or, you know, summarize some of the recent changes you're seeing at the, on the law level around pay transparency. Well, to, to start with, I think there's a bit of a misconception that pay transparency as a concept is like this new thing. Because in some fashion or another, there's actually been some statutory requirements, of course, in California and others, that you can get to pay data without a lot of effort. It's What's now changing is the scale where this is happening, and in some jurisdictions, how it's happened. So, for example, in California, you've had for some laws out there that require employers to disclose pay information to applicants and employees upon request. And now that's becoming an affirmative publication uh, obligation, essentially, with job postings. And that's sort of where the spectrum is at right now. Some states are still in the, okay, if somebody asks for it, you got to give it. A couple states are in the, no, you just got to put it out there. And then where it starts to get really thorny is places like Colorado, which are trying to 
apply this essentially extraterritorially. You know, there, there's no limitation on remote workers. If it's possible that this this work somehow touches Colorado, even if you're not hiring the person, their contention is you got to publish this information. So that that's sort of the, the broad overview is you're working within two poles of what does pay transparency mean? How affirmative is the employer's obligation? And then how complicated does it get from there? Mm, good point. And and just for clarity, the in, in in the postings in general, the the thing is sort of publishing the range or the expected rate of pay. Are there any exceptions to that, or is that really the scope of kind of the last eighteen months? Is really around the range of pay for that role, or are there any other requirements that you've seen about different aspects of pay or <laughs> uh, anything more specific that needs to be published? I, I think there the, the true answer to that is we don't really necessarily know that quite yet because, you know, they talk about pay and they talk about salary. Well, well, you know, a lot of positions have a lot more to compensation than just a salary or a certain form of pay. Um, and, and so what does that all mean? But, you know, like, for example, you've got New York that says you've got to give a minimum and maximum salary range. California's requirement is you have to disclose pay, which it then defines as salary. So you're starting to figure out, okay, well, but what about incentives? Because, you know, bonuses are a significant part of compensation and therefore recruitment and retention for this position. How do we incorporate those things? What does the state require us to do? So the, the simple answer is there's sort of a, everybody's looking at everybody else in terms of how we're doing this from a, from a legislative standpoint. And there's only so much detail you can put in a law. And I think there's going to have to be some practical interpretation and application of this sort of thing. When you get down to the idea that pay pay is a three letter word. That's a very nebulous proposition. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Is there a, a greatest common denominator? Meaning, if I'm an employer and on, on every job post, I, I provide a range of pay for salary. Sorry, I should be clear. Uh, a, a salary range, maybe a target incentive amount, and a brief description of sort of financial benefits, uh, which I'm seeing a lot of companies kind of posting in that you know genre, right? They might not give them the you know, amount of bonus, but they'll talk about bonus eligibility. So they're, they're publishing a salary range. They're giving some insights into kind of variable pay and then anything financial from a benefit perspective. Does that, does that, you know, is that sort of the maximum disclosure and is that kind of the, the end game for this where that seems like that's where people are headed or, or would you characterize it differently than just, you know, Hey, put the numbers out there and you'll be fine. It's hard for me to opine on where people are headed because I, I sort of go back to this expecting rational behavior from rational people. And even the smartest business people sort of get caught up in the, this is very complicated. How do we do, you know, if we're a big enterprise, how do we do this in New York, California, Colorado, and we don't have to do anything in Alabama and Tennessee, so we don't want to do anything there. And it's this, you know, they get their heads wrapped around sort of the weeds of the technicalities. I, I, I'm sort of with you in the sense that don't outthink yourself. You know, the point is, mm. the point is to disclose to people what the value of the position is and go from there. And so that's sort of where I come down on what's the smartest thing to do. Does that mean that's what people are going to do? No, because I don't rule the world and I may not be all that smart. But that to me is sort of the most practical approach to it in any event. Yeah, that's it's actually a good point. I want to come back to some state nuances in a second, but but I'm going to 
move away uh, because I think you raised the, you know, hey, use good judgment or be rational, you know, understand the spirit here. I, I think it's New York, um, if memory serves me correct, um, that uses the good faith sort of language in there. Right. Maybe it's, maybe it's not here. Um, you know, where it's, you know, basically a good faith estimate or range of pay. Like, what do you expect? So that's a, that's a, that's a weasel word, a uh, technical term for me, um, where it's unclear to the sort of non-practicing folks. What is that intended to mean? So I guess as the, as the lawyer, like when you see good faith, you know, what does that mean? Like how do, how do courts view that standards? How should companies view the standards? And sometimes examples can help outside of this, you know, particular area. So something other than pay transparency, like what does good faith look like? <laughs> and how do we know if we are exhibiting an appropriate amount of good faith? So I'm going to go off on a seeming tangent here just because it's entertaining and, and then I'll break. But the, there's a, a fairly famous Supreme Court decision talking about what is pornography. And ultimately, the, the, the language from the court is, and I'm going to paraphrase it, is I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it. Yeah, yeah I, I think <laughs> we've, I've heard that. I've heard that summary before, for I, sure. <laughs> and and I, to me, that's sort of good faith in this area, too, like. You know, I've I've seen a couple other pieces advising clients in New York City, for example, say, "All right, well, the the salary range for the position is fifty thousand to three hundred and fifty thousand." And I look at that and I just kind of go, mm, "Do better. Like you can do better than that, right?" So that one doesn't pass the smell test to me, and it's not good faith. It's just sort of a, "This is what the law says we're going to do, and we're going to throw some numbers out there." On the other hand, you know, if you look at a situation and you can say this may not have ended up to be accurate in a given context, but on the whole, this is accurate. And there are indicia that this employer really is trying to do what they're supposed to do. That's good faith to me. And where do you, there's no bright line in between those two poles, but I sort of feel like you know it when you see it. Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? And even if they didn't do it perfectly, but they did it in the way that they're supposed to, then that should be good faith. Yeah, it's, I was having a conversation with a a client the other day, um, kind of a weird scenario where they know they want a software engineer, but they don't really know what specific skills they need or want. They don't really care where they find the person. And they want to be opportunistic, particularly given all of the change and, you know, layoffs happening in, in Silicon Valley and things like that. So they're like, how do I how do I think about a job like that? And I said, well, let's 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 scenario play out what those could be. Right. So you may end up with a relatively junior engineer living in a square state um, with a low cost of living. So let's just toss out a number and say that you could probably achieve that talent at ninety thousand dollars or you might find you know, a fellow who just got let go from one of the fang companies <laughs> uh, in the Valley who expects, you know, a total, you know, salary of $250,000. Um, you know, so in that scenario, it's actually, you you reasonably expect, you might pay anywhere between there. Like, it's going to look foolish if right. you post that as a range because people are going to say, really? 90 to 250 is what you think you're going to pay for this job? Like, give me a break. Um, you know, so my... The, the conversation was, well, can you really do that? And, you know, I guess I, I should, you know, get the legal advice, but 
to me, that's that was a rational thought process about why you might post that range. If somebody challenged you on it, you could say, well, here's why. We didn't really know what we wanted. But let's take <laughs> that was- a step further then even. If you're really trying to look in the good faith, my advice to that particular client would be if it sort of looks suspicious at a superficial level, but you really know that it's not, that this is truly good faith, then make the case up front. Like in your posting, yeah. put something like, range is 90k to 250 and will depend upon you know experience level expertise and there will be significant opportunity for advancement if you come in at the lower range like okay now that's a radically different paradigm than just saying 90 to 250. yeah i agree and we we talked a lot about that what's the heading on the job posting it's not like principal software engineer because that's not what we're we're actually saying we're just looking for software engineering talent. <laughs> like, how do we genericize the headline and say, look, we want you. We don't know who you are, but we want you uh, if you're great. And as a result, here's how it works. Like, if we're just open about that and transparent around our intent, I think people get it. You know, I think the better question then is what kind of talent does that attract? But at least it is a good faith representation of what we expect to pay. Sure. Um, it's just, yeah, but, it, you know, will a great person want to apply to a job with that kind of a range? We don't know. I think we're still learning that. Well, it, so um, and it's interesting that you say because this is another thing that I hope pay transparency ultimately does. And, you know, like the California record keeping requirement about salary history, not our band, um, but just about salary history and things like that is, is, well, this is very onerous. And, you know, now we have to really sort of understand we have to we have to benchmark against the market this, that or the other. And my, my response to them is kind of don't you kind of want to know your market? right? Like, don't you want to kind of have a sense of what the value of this position is in order to attract the right talent for what you need? Because I have lots of clients who just, well, I'm, you know, they'll have a very important position and they'll, they just won't pay what the position is worth because what the position, I, I, we just can't afford that. And then they cycle through underqualified candidates because, you know, somebody who's low on the experience range sees the vice president title and is willing to take that job without really having the expertise, experience, ability or whatever to do it well. And then the client gets upset. It's like, well, why do I keep on hiring crappy people? Well, it's because you're not paying what the position is worth. And, you know, so market data like that are very valuable in understanding if I want this outcome from this position, then this is the value I needed to subscribe to it. And if I'm not willing to invest in that, then so be it. But at least I understand I'm the one making the decision not to get the results that I'm looking for. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, clearly the, you know, posting a number is a pretty big signal about what type of talent you expect, right? And that's where, you know, uh, lowballing your range or, you know, being aggressive with your range or just not knowing can absolutely kind of taint or, or skew you know, who's going to be looking at this job? Who's actually going to click the apply button, which even though the talent market is feeling like it shifts with some notable layoffs and things like that, we're still talking about very low unemployment. So, you know, getting the right person to click the apply button is a pretty important thing to, to do. And how do you how do you communicate intent and make sure you track the right people with that range? Kind of the tricky part of this, for sure. Yes. Um, so... I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we, we talked about good faith and, you know, what if, what if you don't follow uh, a good faith estimate or what if you just choose to ignore it, <laughs> um, you know, or 
you're, you're paralyzed by not knowing what to do, which was, I think, you know, a very common response, particularly when, you know, when the first Colorado mm-hmm. rules came out, right? Other than the, this does not apply to Colorado, which they said uh, doesn't work. But, you know, the, the cavalier side of me says, there's no real way to enforce this at scale. Like there's not, there's not an army of people looking at every company's job postings and saying, oh, you don't have a range on this one. There's a fine, thousand bucks. Um, so I guess what, how are you advising your clients to think about the enforcement of this? Um, you know, sometimes it makes good business sense to just wait a week or, um, you know, you know, I, I want to, I, you know, I, I follow the law. I'm a law abiding citizen really, but like, it's hard sometimes to do it exactly right. So like, how are you framing the risks of sort of enforcement or noncompliance when you're working with your clients? I mean, so much of that, again, depends on what, where we're talking about, right? Like, I, you know, I, I, I'm forever using California example for everything and people probably get tired of it. But the climate in California is just, it's so difficult, right? I mean, you, it may be that your, your job pool isn't looking at the stuff and doesn't even know it. But I guarantee you there are two dozen enterprising plaintiffs, class action lawyers in California who are looking around and trying to find, you know, employers that are failing to comply with the letter of the law. And then they're going to go out and try to recruit plaintiffs. And suddenly you've got potentially a private attorneys general act, you know, with, with, you know, millions of dollars of penalties associated for a technical violation of the law. So the cavalier approach to me, one is, it is actually fraught with like legitimate, easily maturable risk in certain jurisdictions. So that's one thing, but you know, at, at a more holistic level, if like, listen, if I had a client that came to me, it's like, yeah, we know we're supposed to do this. We're not in California, so we really don't care. Whatever, it's too difficult. Depending on my relationship with that client, I'd be like, you know, is that really who you wanna be at a cultural level? Like, do you really wanna be known as an employer that just doesn't care? and isn't interested in trying to do the right thing by people because, you know, at some point that is going to have a business impact on Mm. you. If you don't have access to good talent because you don't have a good reputation as somebody who cares about the people and complies with law intended to protect against institutional pay inequity, that is is the business case for not being cavalier to me. That's a good point. It's the, you know, my, uh, someone who's joined this podcast before, Brian Briscoe talks about, you know, wherever the laws are going is sort of where there's, you know, truth or where there's something to be thinking about. It's not necessarily about just what the law is. Um, you know, this might be, this is an interesting example of that. Like there's law around how you need to be transparent. Um, but it's really, it's there because there's a societal need for greater transparency in some form. Um, and do you want to be kind of lagging that, that broader trend, regardless of whether your state (laughs) or the, you know, at a federal level, there's a rule, you know, is there a reason regardless of the rule to, to be more transparent? Yeah. Um, And shameless self-promotion, like same idea. I, you know, when, when we were talking about this late last year, I I think I wrote an article and I don't know where exactly, but the, the gist of the article was that when you look at new compliance issues, so many times the questions that we get start with what or how, and, and we sort of forget the why. Like, what, mm. why are we doing this? And the why is important, right? And I, and I literally had a meeting with an organization a few months ago where we were talking through 
the headaches with this. And this was an employer who really viewed itself as very culturally progressive. And their people were, not only were they sort of following the buzz line of our people are our most important asset, but like their leadership truly believed it. And they were kind of going on on the what and the how do we do about this? And I asked them the why question and I could just see like their like minds go, oh, we've been totally missing the point here. Yeah, the why is important and that's who we want to be. And suddenly that shifted everything in terms of how they were thinking about this stuff. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. I think, um, you know, I look up until not long ago, I was a practicing rewards leader and you, you kind of just freak yourself out. Right. And you get paralyzed by, well, the, oh, my gosh, this isn't perfect. I have to try. <laughs> I have to post this, um, you know, and people are going to freak out like you worry about that so much because, you know, that it's really hard to get all these decisions right. Um, but sometimes even just being transparent about that kind of addresses the issue <laughs> like, hey, this is really hard. Right. We're asking, you know, many, you know, I come from tech companies. We're asking managers to make pay decisions every year or every, you know, so often. That's a hard thing to do. <laughs> and as a result, there are going to be things that need to be managed, like just being open about that or, yep, the market has shifted. We're going to be posting some ranges in, in some postings to attract the right talent. We understand in some circumstances that may not represent where you think you're paid. Um, if that's the case, apply to that job and then we'll talk about what, <laughs> what we could do about your pay or, you know, whatever the right message is. But transparency and authenticity around why you're afraid about it or what's going to be broken, you know, uh, is part of the story here, too. It's not just about like being transparent about how much to pay, but being more open in general about the the challenges you're trying to address within that is a pretty strong cultural statement. And, and it also disarms the, the problem a little bit for a rewards leader who's kind of putting their neck out on the line a bit uh, sure. in terms of what they and, built. And I probably don't sound very much like a, you know, a technical lawyer right now, but let me tie this back to a, a pure legal point. So the good faith argument, right? Like part of, to me, the, the, the show of good faith is seeing, does this, does this employer understand the why? Right? Like whether they got it perfect or not, do they understand what the law is trying to achieve here? And are they acting in that spirit? Right? Okay, there's your legal defense. Mm. That's a good point. Uh, I guess a follow up on that to an extent, I have one client who has a documented methodology um, for, for how they post a range. Um, and it, it's challenging because they, you know, they pay differently by geography and they're a remote first company. Um, so it, there's some uncertainty, but they have a formula essentially. Um, you know, it, it sounds like that, okay, they get the why they understand they need to post this. They have an approach to it. You know, I guess, do you recommend there being more sort of documented practices around why you're doing things, uh, rather than just focusing on, let's make sure the numbers in the description. <laughs> um, or is this one of those circumstances where, because we still don't know exactly how all this works, it's better off. Um, you know, being careful about, you know, how prescriptive you are in your methodology. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely, the, the more that you think through these things, the more you want to document the fact that you have thought through them. Because at the end of the day, you know, you get a claim against you, you have to defend yourself. And, you, you know, you, you may end up defending things, decisions that were made eight years ago by three prior predecessors. So if you're sort of in the position where now you're the HRVP, you're under scrutiny for something that happened not on your watch. 
if the company didn't have a good process to get you to there, you're, you're, you're so, you can be hamstrung. So mm -hmm. just from it, from a purely legal point of view, yeah, it's very important to document this stuff, but uh, it's just a good idea, right? When you document your things, it forces you to think through what you're doing because you have to think through what you're documenting. And then you have sort of the history to go back and like, you know, I, I don't think that means having a crazy methodology, but I think it means having a, a process that stands up to some kind of scrutiny. And, you know, if you're going to go all the way to the methodology, then, then the corollary to that is don't expect that it's perfect. Like be open-minded to the fact that we didn't necessarily get this right, even if we were extremely careful in how we went about it and, yeah. and be okay with it. Be open to change. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is hard stuff, uh, and everybody's innovating quite a bit here on on the front end of this new frontier, particularly with external transparency. Um, you know, a lot of the pay ranges and structures that that comp professionals have built for years were really not intended for public disclosure. I mean, it doesn't mean they can't, but when we built them, that wasn't a key consideration. Um, and when all of a sudden you got to show it. You know, that's that's a scary moment, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and, and as people are rethinking structures and then thinking, well, how do I talk about this, given that this wasn't something I thought about when I built it, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever the timeline was, um, you know, it, it's definitely an opportunity for renovation and, and rethinking what's possible, no doubt. And, and going back to the why again, like at the end of the day, this is about eliminating pay discrepancy barriers and institutional reasons for pay disparity. And yeah, maybe 10 years ago, we didn't think about this stuff. We didn't have the information and the knowledge and the sociology, but we do now, right? Or at least we have a lot more than mm. we used to. So let's just go with it. Like 20 years ago, we didn't have iPhones and we didn't all die, but most of us would die without our iPhone right now because <laughs> we've just evolved. You know, like we can evolve as business people and lawyers and practitioners too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, given that, you know, linking the, the you know, recent changes, which are largely, not exclusively, but largely around sort of transparency externally, um, you mentioned on the outset, which is a good point, that it's not like pay transparency from a regulation perspective is a brand new concept, that there have been other rules. Um, there is other law about transparency. Um you know, but if we, it seems like, you know, pay equity and pay equality has been sort of the, that's really the broader trend. How do we make sure we're paying fairly? Um, and a lot of the attention now is around the front end of the employment relationship. And how do we make sure people start from an, a more equitable place? I guess let's, let's talk briefly a little bit about some of those transparency mechanisms post that sort of, you know, recruiting moment, right? The salary history ban stuff, the job posting uh, regulation that's happening now. But after that, there's still pay equity matters to be addressed. And it doesn't feel like, and maybe I've mistaken here, but it doesn't feel like there's as much on the transparency side there. Um, you know, I know there are some states that are, you know, we must provide the range on requests kind of a thing. Um, but is that it? Like, is that really the extent of the transparency movement within an organization? Is it seen as like, look, that's that's private within an organization, so we can't really regulate that? Like, I guess, how do you think about the the law as it's evolving for transparency post that initial employment? I, I, you know, so I, I, can, I can think about that through the lens of the conversations that I have had, you know, where, you know, if, you, if you're looking mechanistically, yeah, focus is really 
at the pre-employment sort of stage. But, you know, a number of conversations I have had is concern about putting this information out there because now their existing people are going to be like, wait a minute, my position, that's what you're paying for it. Why am I not getting paid for it? And, and, you know, there's always sort of the proverbial rumor mill that employers are worried about. Mm -hmm. And to, to some extent, I think that's overblown in my own experience, but it's not completely crazy either. And, you know, people talk and they talk about salary and, and things like that. So if you are in a position where your first reaction is, I've got to put this stuff out and my current people are going to be upset about it. Well, maybe you're not valuing your current people all that well. And if they're really valuable to your growth plan, maybe you need to be the one to come to them. It's like, you know what, we'd really, we'd really like to show you how important you are. And, you know, there's lots of ways we can do that, but the easiest, quickest is, is rewards. Um, so again, it goes back to this, yet the, the legal mechanism is focused on it, but the practical reality is I'm hoping it will drive institutional changes because people aren't worried about the legal compliance. They're worried about ultimately losing their people or losing their culture or creating division within the ranks. Mm. It's a good point. And, you know, a, a plug from my side, just because I find that so many of my peers in the in the HR space forget, you know, transparency about how much to pay is part of that sort of cultural transformation. Um, it doesn't mean sharing what everybody else has paid. Um, it's just, you know, being more open about how your pay is set. But there's more to it than just what's the range. Um, you know, making sure you're focusing on how do we make decisions when we do make salary changes? What are the factors we consider you know, being open about the budgeting process around that or the data that's used to quantify what is market. Um, you know, if you've got plans that aren't just simple salary plans, be it bonuses or piece rate pay or, <laughs> um, you know, different structures, like how do those really work? Like those are other forms of transparency that we forget about at times. And that also creates that sort of culture of trust um, and, and broader transformation around helping people understand how do they get ahead? Um, and, and how how do you as an organization sort of either help them or support that that wage growth? Um, it's not just about saying what what the range is and, and being done. There's more enablement we can do to help people think that through. And how do you get the businesses to see that that's actually valuable from a bottom line perspective too, right? Mm. To think through the eyes of your people. Because if the concept is the more information that we arm people with in terms of what are we expecting from them? How do we value their work? And what do we really want from them in order to reward them? The more likely those people are to deliver the performance you're looking for because they know what they're being expected to do. Yep. Yeah. I have a, a two-part question, um, but on the same theme. So, so given that there's a lot still evolving here, right? Like, you know, New York law just went into effect not long ago. California law is going to affect kind of as we're speaking to an extent here. Um, so the two parts, first part is, you know, where do you, where do you point your clients and it, it's okay if it's a fully resource to sort of stay abreast of what is changing and what's coming to, to fruition. And the second is given that everything's evolving, sort of how are you advising your clients to approach the implementation of new plans or strategies, you know, given that what I put in today, I might have to change you know, in, in a low single digit number of months. So how do, how do you stay up to date on what's changing? And then what the heck should I do 
from an action perspective while things are still evolving? Well, so personally, let me answer that first question personally. You know, we have a we have a large practice group and I happen to have a fair amount of experience on this, but but so do my colleagues. And you know, they're writing and publishing things. We talk about stuff. Like I I I, I may be sort of the talking head or, or a talking head expert, but I'm by far and away the from the smartest guy in the room. So there's just a lot of sourcing, like, you know, let's share ideas within our team and then they're all publishing stuff. But, you know, clients, I, I have no problem with clients going like, hey, I saw this thing from another firm. It's not something we've talked about, but can we talk about it? Like the information or question and questions always generate better outcomes or at least better thought. So how do we stay abreast of it? Just be listening and don't get in the ivory tower about it. You know, um, clients that spend money on regular audits and regularly stress test their business, I find are much smarter because they're proactive about spending their legal dollars and then they know what they're going to spend instead of being reactive about cleaning up problems that you have no idea what the liabilities are going to create. Mm. And that sort of goes to that same idea. But in terms of how am I then bringing sort of what I know to clients, I think it goes back to this, this same idea. Well, what do you want? Do you want a mechanistic solution and then that's it in that case i can give you the rules and you can figure out how you're going to try and do that in this state or the other or we can talk big picture like what are your goals in response to this obligation to comply with the law and if that's like okay let's let's go to that good faith point like this can't be that hard it doesn't mean that it's easy but at the same point the point here is to provide information to people so they can make intelligent decisions and understand what the value of the position is and eliminate the black box out of stuff that has driven institutional pay inequity. That, those are good things to me, right? Mm -hmm. And if, that, if you're a company that believes that those are good things and you wanna be part of that spirit, then let's talk about it from that perspective and worry a little bit less about, you know, what does Colorado require? What does California require? Because when you, once you figure out what you want to do, it's usually pretty easy to make small modifications to tick off the various state law compliance things that vary from state to state. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll mention, right. So uh, on Foley's website, there's a, you know, an insights section, which is where uh, things get posted when you and your peers publish things. So that's a, a good, I'll put it in the show notes for those listening um, as another place to just stay abreast of what's going on. Um, they tend to post things every week or so, I think, uh, just to keep things current, which is great. Yeah, we post one anywhere from two to three articles every week without fail. But, you know, lots there, there are a lot of good lawyers out there who do what I do. And, I, you know, I, I encourage people to look at all the resources out there, not just Foley's, you know, where we try to distinguish ourselves is not in, you know, it's in practical solutions and practical thinking. Yep. So, you know, uh, I'm not I'm not competing for business by putting articles out there. That's just kind of part of the job. And it doesn't mean we have sort of the market on it by any means. Yep. Nope. I appreciate that. Um, so at the front of it, I asked you for an opening statement. Uh, it feels appropriate when talking to a lawyer to sort of ask for a closing statement. So is there anything, you know, we haven't talked about or, um, you know, key kind of summary points that you would want to make at this stage around kind of what's happening in pay transparency? Um, I, my, my biggest sort of point is to just sort of be cautious, but not, you know, like afraid. 
<laughs> if that's because mm. stuff's just going to change. And so, you know, whatever you do right now, if you're needing to create a solution to the league, it's probably going to need modifications as things develop. And that's okay, right? I, I just, but I don't then suddenly let that knowledge that you're probably not going to know how to do this or get this right perfectly to then paralyze you. Like, move forward, you know, like pretend you're in a bowling lane with gutters. Like, all right, it may not be a straight line of the pins. You might bounce back and forth, but mm. you'll eventually get there, right? No, that's good. I like that. Um, if a listener wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that, Chris? Uh, probably just email. Uh, my email address is just cward at foley.com, F-O-L-E-Y. There you go. Um, well, this is always fun uh, to to chat uh, work rather than talk about kids and stuff like that that we normally do as friends. Uh, but it's uh, I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your expertise. And uh, thanks for joining today, Chris. Yeah, of course. Anytime. So there you go. There's a quick... Uh, perspective on what's changing in the law, how to think about that, how to think about compliance and and the problems, the ways that you can solve those problems. I always appreciate talking with Chris. We go back a few years, uh, so it's fun uh, to engage on topics like this. Uh, Thank you for listening as always. If you found this helpful, uh, we always appreciate it if you can share with your network or just go ahead and give us some stars or a follow on your favorite podcast platform. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Insights, where we help people teams think differently to make a bigger impact in their organizations. Until next time, thanks for listening.